0: You together for the last year and a half, fish, (laughs) plowing though. Quick word, housekeeping. So uh, this is like my family's going on vacation. We're actually going to miss three Sundays, okay? And I know, don't get too excited. So so, do you want to go? Thank God. It's about time we heard from somebody else. I know, we agree. Um, Next Sunday, but we're going to keep going through Matthew so you don't have to wait. All right, so Kevin is going to preach next week. Um will preach on Matthew 19 um, about children. Jeremy is the manager for Vacation Bible School at Lifeway, and uh, which is the perfect text for him, talking about Jesus and the children. And he lives here in Murfreesboro. He's a great communicator. And so I hope that you'll come and, uh, and, and worship and be a part of, of and support him. He's an excellent guy. And then my other dear friend uh, uh, on March 26th, which is the day we are actually flying home, um, is Michael Kelly. Michael is uh, the director of the Nashville Baptist Association here in town, was a vice president life way for many, many years, and has been a friend for 20 years. So um, super excited to have them come and share with you and keep plowing through Matthew. Um, and when we get to the really weird parts in 24 and 25 and 26, we'll see who I can hire um, <laughs> to get there. All right. So we'll worry about that later. Uh, Matthew 18 verses 1 through 14. There um, was a Story of a father who was uh, walking through the parking lot of, uh, of the fitness center with his uh, grade school son. So they had to park like three lanes away from the entrance, so they had to cross through three different uh, lanes of traffic for people to park in. And when they came to one of those lanes, um, instead of uh, where there's a crosswalk, you know, instead of continuing to walk um, when there was a car there, the, the son was like waving the car through. Instead of him walking across like you're supposed to, he was waving the the car through. And the dad turned to his son and said, "Son, you know, they're they're stopped because you have the right of way. You're supposed to cross, not them drive." And the son said, "Well, Dad, I like to I like to wave those cars through so they can know how humble I am." <laughs> right. So that's warms you up for the text that we're going to look at because Jesus is going to have a conversation with this and how you, greatness and humility and the relationship between those things and how um, and how you and I are supposed to live, um, not just because we're in the kingdom, but if even if we want to be in the kingdom, okay? So let's look at Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14 together. I am cognizant of the time, and so we'll go quickly, okay? Look at verse 1. <clears throat> At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked this question. So, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if you've been with us in Matthew 16 and 17, this is like the stupidest question a (laughs) disciple you would think. Like, it's completely inappropriate um, at best. Because in 16 and 17, you've got Jesus talking about his imminent suffering, You've got him talking about his death. You've got him talking about his resurrection and how anybody that would come after him and be a part of his kingdom would have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. So for anybody to ask the question, hey, who's the greatest in your kingdom? is kind of absurd, right? There's no way Peter, James, and John after the transfiguration last week asked this question or thought that this was a good idea because they know, they know who the greatest is, right? But then again, maybe the transfiguration account led the disciples to think about this question, right? Maybe the fact that only Peter and only James and only John went up on the mountaintop, raised questions in the other disciples about maybe they were greater than them, right? Maybe Jesus' declaration about building His church on Peter as the foundation through the Gospel of the book of Acts, maybe that led to some talk about, well, Peter's clearly the chosen one here in this regard, right? So maybe some of that's going on, but still this is a really weird question, and yet it's not an all-bad question. Okay, because if you think about it, at the time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? There's some semblance, um, at least they acknowledge that Jesus is the greatest, like it's his kingdom. They recognize that, right? And at least there's some semblance of ambition, right? Hidden underneath this question is the desire to be great and be great underneath Jesus, okay? Which would, presumably, make you a really good person if you were great in Jesus' kingdom, right? The problem I'm having with this question is that it's not a question that any of us are asking. The disciples go through great, and they say, clearly you're the greatest. Who's great under you in your kingdom? But in our culture, we're not asking that question. Today we're asking, how can I make my kingdom the greatest? Okay. How many followers do you think I can get? How much influence do you think I can have? How much money do you think I can earn based on the number of followers and how much influence I have on those people? How can I make my kingdom the greatest. Okay. But whether you're a disciple of Jesus who wants to be great in his kingdom or if you're a disciple of self who wants to make your kingdom great, this text is very applicable. So look at Jesus' response in verse 2. He called a small child and had him stand among them. Okay. Jesus loved object lessons from time to time and this is one of them. He grabs a boy his day, were completely dismissed or looked down upon in culture, which is unfathomable to us because the whole world revolves around children in Western culture in America, okay? But in Jesus' day, it was like, pfft, get out of here, okay? So um, six of us five years ago spent uh, a couple of days in Paris, and one of the things that we noticed is that in the historical areas of the city of Paris, there simply aren't any children. There were none. We were, the, we were like zoo animals walking through the historical part of Paris because we were the only children there, okay? And people were looking down on our children. People were looking down on us for having children to say nothing of our really bad parley-boo, français, French, you know, that we didn't have, right? So I'm sure the French like, appreciate their, their children, but no one in the old city was having anything to do with, with, with ours. Okay? And the same kind of general, general posture towards children was true of Jesus' day. Adults were arrogant toward children. And I choose that word arrogant on purpose, because even though it has a negative connotation, there's something about us that's actually drawn to people who are a little bit arrogant. Okay? Arrogance comes in handy when you want to be great in the eyes of the world. You might even argue that while we'd say arrogance isn't an ideal quality in a leader, we actually are somewhat impressed with somebody who is a little cocky, a little braggadocio, generally full of themselves, maybe even a little narcissistic, okay? You've probably even voted for someone like this, not turning a blind eye to the arrogance, because they supported things that you supported but because deep down you're drawn to a person's relative arrogance it gives you a sense of confidence that they know what they're actually doing okay but that's not who Jesus grabs to make an object lesson about greatness he doesn't grab anybody who's arrogant he doesn't grab anybody that's leading anybody he doesn't grab anybody that's okay he grabs the kind of person that an arrogant Bombastic, self confident person would have looked down upon as weak and insignificant. Look at verses three through four. Jesus grabs his child and he says, Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, you're just tapping him on the head there, right? This one who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven five things really quickly number one this is a solemn topic truly I tell you in the Greek is is, is Jesus' way of saying of of leaning in like your dad used to do you better hear me boy and he would tell you something really important you better be more afraid of me than them out there or something like that right a really solemn conversation is getting ready to take place This discussion about greatness cuts right to the heart of what it means to be a person in the kingdom of God. It's a solemn moment, not a cute moment. It's It's not a secondary or a tertiary issue when it comes to being a Christian. It's a primary doctrine. Okay? Number two... Isn't it interesting that Jesus, in this verse, does not dismiss the quest or the desire for greatness? He doesn't say, you're thinking about the wrong... Greatness, we don't mind greatness. I'm the great, you don't need to be great. It's not. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say you're asking the wrong thing. He doesn't say greatness isn't on the table. What he does do is he turns the conversation of greatness completely on its head. Okay? Which leads me to point number three. Greatness is defined by Jesus as dependence on God. True greatness is dependence. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in what sense does a? some of you have children, and and you're probably wondering, in what sense does my child model humility? He or she doesn't. (laughs) They don't, okay, any more than you do. I'll take you back to my opening illustration. Even when the child was attempting to be humble, he wasn't being humble, right? He was being prideful. Children rarely act humbly. So Jesus does not mean behave like a child, okay? But children are almost entirely dependent upon adults in this world for protection and provision. And this is lies Jesus' point about greatness. Truly great people strive for dependence on God, not independence from everyone else. Greatness is not the pursuit of independence so that you don't have need or or, and live in you. Greatness is to strive for and live in complete dependence upon God which actually leads you to live in complete interdependence on your relationships with the people who are pursuing God with you. That's greatness. Okay? So all people need to, to, for, to be great, need to strive for dependence on God in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven. That's what, dependence, that's what greatness is. Okay? And if you're going to do that, and this is the fourth thing right out of the text, this requires turning Did you see that in the verse? I missed this the first four days I was working on this. Jesus said, verse 4, verse 3, excuse me, unless you turn and become, right? Turn from what? A preoccupation with striving for greatness according to the world's view of it. Okay? If you want to strive for dependence on God, then you cannot do that without turning turning from our efforts to be great on our own terms. Okay. It's one thing to resonate with Jesus' teaching on greatness. It's a whole nother thing to work to get it done. One of my favorite books from leadership is a book by a guy named William Bridges, and it's called Managing Transitions. Sounds super exciting. Ralph, you would love this book if you haven't already. Where'd Ralph go? Is he working security? Where is he? Hey, Ralph. Sorry. There you are. It's good to see you. Ralph. Okay. This is what he says. This is a book about the psychology of change in organizations and people. He says, it isn't the changes that do you in. It's the transitions. Change is not the same as transition. Change is situational. The new site is a change. The new boss is a change. The new roles is a change. The new policy, that's change. But transition is the psychological process that people go through to come to terms with the change. The change is external, but the transition, that's internal. And that's what Jesus is describing here. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be great As defined by Jesus Himself, if you want to be great in that way, you have to go through the transition work to undo what you have done. As Yoda would say, to unlearn what we have learned, right? (laughs) That's what you got to do. You're welcome. (laughs) You can't just go, yeah, Jesus is right. That's greatness. I agree with them. I'm in the kingdom of heaven. Faith is made evident by what it does. You've got to go through the transition of finding and actually establishing your greatness as dependence on God. The fifth thing I want you to know from this text is that being in the kingdom is being great. Self-confidence and spiritual libertarianism to one of humility and dependence, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of God, much less be great in it. That's what the text says, right? Verse 3, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter. Who's going to be great? Well, if you don't turn, you're not even going to be there. But if you're there, you're great. See? By definition... You will enter, and by definition, you will be great in the kingdom. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest. Whoever humbles himself like this child, this one, whoever those may be, they are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The criterion for entering is the criterion for being, for greatness. They're the same. To be in the kingdom is to be great in the kingdom. So, this text is like super comforting and super unsettling. (laughs) It's like a weighted blanket. You're welcome. (laughs) It's comforting because the kingdom of heaven is like the pro bowl of faith, and everybody who's there is like letter varsity pro bowler because we got in. We're there. If you're there, you're great. Okay, we're all Hebrews eleven. Okay, But it's also very discomforting because it forces us to consider our standing in the kingdom. It forces us to evaluate where we stand in relationship to the kingdom of heaven. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. Is my confidence that of a child's ability to earn God's approval and be declared great? Is my, is my pleasing God something that I'm doing so that he could possibly be pleased? Or is my pursuit and the pleasing of God one a posture of dependence because he's already pleased in me by the work of Jesus? It's a very important question, especially if you're religious or grew up in the church. Okay. Now, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus would just give us an example, some sort of practical hands-on way of helping us know where we stand. <gasps> look at verse 5. Okay? He puts it he gives you a, an example of what it looks like to put this into practice. Verse 5. Whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. If you want to know whether or not you are humbling yourself instead of championing yourself, then you need to look to see which of those two options that you're encouraging in other people. Who are sensitive to, to transitioning, transitioning from self-confidence to God-confidence, then that means you are God-confident. How am I treating and responding to other people who are struggling with this and seeking after dependence on God? If you're looking down on them, you're not one of them. I don't mean one time. I mean as a to look down on people who are trying very hard to be dependent and interdependent and not be great as the world defines it then you're not great as Jesus defines it. Okay, That's what verse 5 means. Now, if you're not sure, Jesus gives a warning. Look at verse 6. If you are causing one of these little ones who believe in me, little ones is pedon and micron. There's three different, technon, pedon, and micron in the Greek here. So he's talking about one of these people who is humbling themselves and, and considers greatness to be dependence. If you are, here's that practical handle, if you're causing one of these people who believe in me to fall away, to try and find their identity through self-confidence and, and, uh, and not dependence, but independence, if you're causing one of them, it would be better for You, if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So if you're assessing your posture toward people who are humble and dependent and you discover that you are discouraging humility and you're discouraging dependence, Jesus' warning says, brother, you need to get with the program because you don't want to be on the wrong side of the kingdom of heaven. If your life is characterized by causing others to lean into spiritual libertarianism or self-confidence, then you better long for, you are better off longing for a very dramatic and decisive and physical death, a large concrete wheel, stone wheel, that a donkey would pull and it would crush grain. It was like up here, like a birdbath hot neck, and throw yourself into the ocean. You're better off in that than you are facing the wrath of the kingdom of heaven for pushing people toward independence and self-confidence. You see how serious this is. And if that warning's not strong enough, look at verse 8, 9, and 10. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall, fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. So I want you to take Jesus very literally here because He is literally being metaphorical. Okay, So take it as a metaphor. What is Jesus saying? Radically reject anything that would lead you into evil, particularly in the context of this passage, evil that is not welcoming and encouraging, humility this passage is applying first and foremost. Okay? This is a serious thing. So we've defined what true greatness is. And we've seen one practical way that this greatness can be measured, and we've seen two warnings that emphasize just how important it is that we align our, our lives according to this. But maybe you're the Gospel of John type. You know, not so much practical, but more philosophical. You might be wondering, why does, why does Jesus define true greatness like this? Okay. And if that's you, verses 10 through 14 are right up your alley. Jesus says, see to it then that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. And then your Bible says, after verse 10, it says verse 12, right? Y'all have that? There's no 11? That's because one of the many manuscripts of Matthew has verse 11 that clearly somebody wrote in like 400 years later. And all the old manuscripts don't have verse 11. But somehow it got in there. It's it's not even important. okay? But that's why the numbers are there. It's not a typo by your publisher. Jesus says, what do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I tell you truly he rejoices over that sheep more than the other 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these... Little ones, see how, the, see how this ties in? Little ones perish, okay? What is, what is Matthew doing here? What is Jesus doing here? He is saying, the philosophical question, why is greatness this way? Because that is who God is. He's the God who humbled himself and became, oh, wait a minute, there's a passage in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And then when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can any of us say that Jesus isn't the greatest? And look what the greatest did. And that's why... Greatness is defined that way because it is the only form that truly reflects the nature of God Himself. The one who actually is great, whose glory and fullness and goodness that we read about on the mountain last week, He exhibited his, all of His glory and His fullness and His goodness and His greatness by trusting and obeying the Father and coming to be one of us. And when He was one of us, He deliberately associated and touched and healed and shared meals with really not great people. And that is really great greatness. To do without God. But God showed us greatness by becoming a man. And for that reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Are you great? Are you truly great? Are we a truly great church? What does that mean? You know what it usually means? It means they are cooking with gas, as my dad would say, because we ran a propane gas business. Not butane. That stuff is nasty. Propane. We we are cooking with gas. We are running on all cylinders. I mean, when you come here, you get this, you get that. We're on top of this, we're on top of that. You'll have a really great experience when you come here, and you'll have this, and you'll have that. It's all defined according to the world's terms of what it means to be awesome at something. They're really influential in the community. What does that even mean? It better mean they better be very humble, faith-oriented, dependent-on-God people. That's what it needs to mean if we want to enter into and be in forever the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and we do ask that we be great. There's no shame in wanting to be great. You did not shut this conversation down. You turned it on its head. It's the Like just the math is tempting, right? Like if I just we just know from statistics if if we can have X number of people follow our post or account, then X number of those people will click on this thing and they'll buy that thing and we'll have influence and we'll have greatness. Like we reward self-confidence. We reward building our own kingdom greatness. And you turn it on its head and say that true greatness is to be exactly like Jesus. Which is to lay down anything that we might be entitled to in exchange for complete dependence upon the Father. And if we are living that life of complete dependence upon the Father, our lives will look like the Son giving ourselves to those that great, quote-unquote, great people would never even associate with out of their arrogance. What a cool church it would be. And in many ways already is. But what, a, what an incredible, different congregation This calls us to be the greatest congregation is the one that is utterly unimpressive in so many ways, except the ones that count and that they reflect the life of his name. Amen.